Eric had asked me if, <clears throat> if I had a scripture reading, and I didn't at the time. Um, <clears throat> couldn't think of a, an appropriate verse, but I think I've got one. Um, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, um, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. <clears throat> now, I'm here because I need this lesson. I'm not here because I'm the master of it. A lot of things in recent years I've struggled with, <clears throat> and this is this is one of them. Times when, when I've been tempted to, if you will, lean on my un own understanding rather than trusting in the Lord, um, it's easy for me anyway. You know, you're here, you're in daily situations in your life, and you're like, I see what's going on, I know what's going on, and, you know, therefore I need to do, and you make the decision. And it may or may not have to do with God, and sometimes failing to go to God um, and seek His wisdom in that. So, what I would like for us to do today is to look at at least three biblical examples of people who had to learn to trust in God and and to look at their lives and to think about their lives and and how the latter part of their lives they were of much more value to God in his service once they learned to trust in him um, the first example that I'd like to take a look at is Moses and uh, rather than looking at the Old Testament account, I'd, I'd like to look at Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, there beginning in verse 20. <clears throat> uh, Stephen is recounting some of the Old Testament history, and he gets to this section, and he's talking about Moses beginning again in verse 20. It says, At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Now here what we know up to this point in this passage about Moses and and some of our remembrance of the Old Testament when he was born then his mother put him in the basket and Pharaoh's daughter found him and he was brought up as the grandson of Pharaoh and as it says here he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and in deeds it says then he was about 40 years old. Moses was a very powerful and prominent character. He was well-educated. He was influential. Um, again, saying that he was mighty in words and in power, in deeds. Uh, so if, if we think about Moses based upon our worldly standards of things, Moses was there, you know, 
Egypt was a prominent world power at the time. So, you know, this wasn't uh, the fact that he was brought up in some king's house in some third world country somewhere and he just happened to be there. He was powerful. He, um, he was someone that would have been respected within the society that he was in. And apparently... Uh, he also was aware and conscious of where he actually came from. Uh, when he saw this Hebrew, this brother, being wronged, he sought to avenge this brother. Um, now, <clears throat> we know then he, uh, from, from the Old Testament, he buried the Egyptian in the sand and so forth. I want to take up with verse 26 here. It says, In the next day he appeared to two of them, two Israelites. Uh, again, we know from the Old Testament they were fighting amongst themselves. And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Uh, who do you, or why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Uh, and we know then that he was, if we skip down to the next verse, which we won't, we won't go there yet. He was in, in the wilderness then for another 40 years. And <clears throat> But what took place here, um, the Israelites didn't, or at least this one, didn't recognize him, didn't accept him. Stephen adds uh, an interesting bit of information here that we don't find in the historical account in the Old Testament. He says in verse 25, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So when he was 40 years old and he was this prominent leader in Egypt, he was mighty in words and deeds. He strikes down this Egyptian and he thinks, well, the Israelites are on, will understand that I'm supposed to deliver them from this oppression. But he fled. He, he found out that Pharaoh was seeking his life because of what he had done. And he flees to the wilderness, to Midian. <clears throat> we know from the Old Testament then that he was there 40 years. He became a shepherd. <clears throat> we also, most of us familiar with um, the historical account uh, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. We go through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We see what he did. We see how he did, in fact, deliver the children of Israel. But it wasn't with a sword. In fact, when, when God approached him 40 years later in the wilderness... Moses came up with every excuse in the book as to why he couldn't do it. Um, but yet God was able to use him when he learned to trust in God. He didn't put his faith in, his, in himself, in his power, in his words, and the sword. God sent him back, if you will, to Egypt with a shepherd's staff. Now, 
according to human wisdom, how likely are you to take over a country and deliver a people with a shepherd's staff? You can't unless God is on your side and you are submitting to his will and not trusting in yourself, but trusting in God. One of the New Testament examples I want us to think of uh, and remember is Peter. <clears throat> Again, Peter, uh, we, we talked about him a little bit in, in class uh, this morning, uh, teenagers. Peter, what, a fisherman? He's not well educated. But yet we see, even when he, he is uh, with Jesus, when he's being trained, along with the other apostles, the other disciples, we see that he tends to be a bit impetuous. That he tends to, at times, put faith and confidence in himself and act quickly upon his own inclinations as to what he thinks is best at the time. We see him cut off the, the ear of the high priest's servant in the garden. <clears throat> but yet we see, him, we see him fearful. We see him denying Jesus before the crucifixion. So this, this impetuous person who's trusting in himself rather than God, though, we see him, well, number one, we see him, he, he, he says, you know, tells Jesus before he's crucified, you know, I'm willing to die with you. And Jesus tells him that, you know, Satan's actually asked for you to sift you like wheat. He says, but I've prayed for you. And it's not until after he denies Jesus and Jesus is raised from the dead and he has a chance to once again see Jesus. Um, in John chapter 21, Jesus speaks with Peter when he meets with him and the other disciples near the sea. And he asked Peter if he loves him. And Peter, of course, kind of him hauls around about it. But Jesus asks him and tells him there, he says, tend my sheep and feed my lambs. It was after Jesus' resurrection that Jesus, in, in this situation, reaffirms his love and his care and his trust in Peter. And sometimes we need to understand when we've been forgiven, just like Peter had been forgiven of denying Jesus. God, our, Jesus is, is showing his faith and confidence here in Peter and telling him to tend his sheep and to feed his lambs. And we know then that Peter delivers the first recorded sermon on, on Pentecost. Uh, he and the other apostles there teaching and preaching. And we see his work in the early book of Acts. We know that Peter wasn't perfect even after that. He still struggled with things. We see Paul's account in Galatians where Paul talks about having to confront Peter face to face over his own hypocrisy. But then we see at the end of Peter's life, 
the two epistles that he wrote. And the Peter that we see writing those epistles was not the Peter that we saw beside the Sea of Galilee fishing. We see that he had he had learned to trust in God rather than himself. And the same thing when we think about the life of Paul. <clears throat> we see him, we know things recorded about him, that he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, that he was brought up as a Jew, a Pharisee, a leader among the Pharisees. And his devotion led him to persecute the church. And yet in all that, God found a way to use him. God had to humble him a little bit, strike him blind on the road to Damascus, and then allow him to be taught, uh, as the scriptures say, and shown what he must suffer for the sake of the Lord, for his kingdom. And just think how much of the, of the New Testament we would not have if it weren't for Paul. Paul recorded um, one of my, my favorite passages, if you will, about Paul is in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And he talks about having labored more than all the other apostles, but he says, it, it wasn't me, it was the grace of God that was in me. And attributes, attributes that to the grace that he received from God. And so if we look at, at, at the life of Paul, and again the New Testament, and all that he wrote, and his, his deep concern for the brethren, for people being able to, uh, to enjoy the grace that he had received, it was because he had learned to trust in God and not lean on his own understanding. So all of these men, if, if we think about their lives, number one, we know very little about their early lives. Very little from the scriptures. What we do know, though, and what we do see is how God was able to use them when they trusted in him and not themselves. Um, that's one Old Testament example and two New Testament examples. <clears throat> I want to share with you too, and this, this isn't from Scripture, but I want to share with you, I know some of you know and have uh, Brother Alan Malone that has done work in Vietnam since uh, the early 90s, I think around 93. He went to, uh, to Vietnam with some other brethren about the same time I think that uh, Gary and Dennis Allen went to Brazil. And... But anyway, 1993, it wasn't easy to get into Vietnam to begin with. And if the government knew what you were doing as far as teaching and preaching, you weren't welcome. They didn't want you there. Um, Alan and his family moved there and lived there worked there for a couple of years, and then they moved back to the States. Um, Alan continued to go there. 
over the years. He makes about two trips a year there. Um, the the church when it when they first started going there around '93 and they were able to to meet with some people, convert some people. And this is from information that that Alan has shared. Um, and this perhaps plays in also into not leaning on our own understanding. Um, the the ones, and I don't know if this was, I don't believe this was Alan himself, but some of those that went there decided, hey, you know, we need to really help these local brethren out. And so what they did is, is they called back to the states, got a whole bunch of money, and sent it over, and they were able to help buy a house, uh, remodel it so that it could be a meeting place for the church there. And then when they came back, the first Sunday that, that the U.S. or American brethren weren't there, the communist government came in and raided the church, and about half the congregation fell away. Sometimes we can meddle with things too much. Uh, but the ones that did remain faithful, um, there, there's one brother that, that has, he has worked with a great deal over the years that lives, in, I believe, around Ho Chi Minh City, or formerly known as Saigon. And at the time when Alan and those were first there working with him, <clears throat> this brother, he was engaged and to be married. And after this persecution came upon the church from the government, his wife or his fiancée said, no, I don't want any part of this. And she gave this brother an ultimatum, said, it's either the church or me. And he chose the Lord. And they've, they've since been able to work a great deal over the years. Um, I don't remember exactly the time frame. After Alan had been going there a couple years, there was a Vietnamese-American, someone I assume who had been a refugee from Vietnam at some point, had come to the States, and she had been here for several years, had been become a Christian, and she contacted Alan and said, hey, can you go over sometime and, and teach my family that's over there? Most of them, uh, most of her family were Buddhist, and she was planning sometime in the future to go to go over there herself to visit. Alan told her, said, well, you know, or asked her, said, you know, have you taught anybody yourself? And she said no at that point she hadn't. And, and he said, well, this is what you need to do. Um, basically, you, you need to be able to, when you go there, they need to see something in you that they want. They need to see your faith in Christ being so strong and you're having joy in it that they want what you have. And she got to go over and visit her family and then come back and, and she contacted Brother Allen again and said, can you go over and baptize my family? Well, <laughs> she hadn't taught them per se, um, from the scriptures what they needed to do at that point but he went over and he met with them and they were from from a different area within vietnam 
a place that was further north, further away from Ho Chi Minh City. And <clears throat> he met with them. And I like the way he phrased it. He said when he first met with them, they didn't know what they needed to do to be saved, to become part of God's kingdom. But they wanted to know. So she had at least succeeded in, in what Alan had encouraged her to do. One of these, one of these relatives, I think it was um, perhaps a brother of hers, I'm not sure on that. But two men were converted, and again they were in provinces that were up north of Ho Chi Minh City. <clears throat> One of them, in the passing years, uh, got to where he was preaching. He was teaching himself in that area. And he had a job with, with the communist government. And the government told him, said, if you don't, Quit teaching and preaching, you know, there will be consequences. And he was up in years, approaching retirement and everything, and it ended up that he lost his job. And Brother Allen was concerned, you know, wondering, you know, <clears throat> how is this brother going to react? And he went to visit him. And try to encourage him and everything. And he sat down and he talked to the brother. And the brother said, said, I'm not worried. It just means God has something better. I, I guess the first and only time I've really met Alan and contacted him personally, seen him, <clears throat> he held a meeting down in Morgantown back in 2008. <clears throat> back then in part of his presentation about the work in Vietnam, he actually showed uh, on PowerPoint slide a copy of a wanted poster for himself and those two preachers. And he's continued to go over there. He's never, never stopped, never backed down, never quit. <clears throat> but there were times when in order to get a visa to visit, he would have to contact a different Vietnamese consulate that wasn't familiar with him and didn't know him in order to get a visa to go over and, uh, and encourage the brethren there. Now, it's, it's gotten easier in recent years um, and even when, when uh, I met Brother Allen back in 2008, he said at that time there would have been over 200 Christians that would have met on the Lord's Day as a result of those two brothers that he converted. This year, I think it was a little bit before Christmas, he normally sends uh, email updates out on his trips, but he usually does it through his wife's email, and he sometimes 
He uses kind of cryptic language to dis describe things in order to prevent any um, suspicion among the communist government who's probably reading his emails. But anyway, this year, his wife Cindy and three of their granddaughters went together back to Vietnam. Uh, his wife probably hasn't been there in, I don't think, 15, 20 years, along with Alan. Um, and this is obviously the first trip for his three granddaughters. <clears throat> and they were able to work together with the brethren for about two weeks. And then his wife and the granddaughters came back, and Alan continued to stay and work with the brethren. <clears throat> and then one of uh, Alan and Cindy's sons, uh, the email that I read this morning that he had sent out, his son was on a business trip and had made a stopover in Vietnam. And his son hadn't been there, again, like in 15 or 20 years. Uh, since whenever it was, that, um, and he would have been a child at the time, um, when they moved back to the States. But his son was able to work with him and to worship with the brethren there. And the brethren in Vietnam and Alan in his work with them would never have come about if they had trusted in their own understanding. It's only because their faith and confidence has been in God that they could accomplish this in such extreme circumstances. And just think what, what a blessing it must be for him and his family to be able to share in God's work in that way and to care that much about people on the other side of the earth. You know, I've <clears throat> I've shared with you all in the past, and I've shared with Brother Allen too. I mean, it it it's extremely encouraging to me because when I was growing up, I was co concerned about being drafted and sent to Vietnam and thankful that I never had to. But I'm even more grateful for it because I would not have wanted to have been put in a position to kill someone and prevent them from today being a brother. But again, one of the things that one of the lessons that Brother Allen shared when I first met him when he held the meeting in Morgantown he did a series of lessons <clears throat> he entitled The Providence of God. And he, he went back and he started with Abraham, did a lesson on Abraham, a lesson on Jonah, and then did several lessons from the New Testament. <clears throat> but in order for the providence of God to work, to do any good, we got to trust it. we got to trust that God knows what's best that God's going to bring about His will and accomplish His purposes. And again, I think we see that in the life of Moses. Moses wasn't able to accomplish God's will 
until he trusted God enough to go back to Egypt with a shepherd's staff instead of a sword. And, and Peter, he could not have, have again written First and Second Peter if he had not grown to trust in God and to realize that, that what God has done for us and provided for us enables us to escape the power of Satan who seeks to destroy us, who is that roaring lion that Peter describes that seeks to devour us. And to know that God's power is greater. And same thing with Paul. But that same trust, that same providence of God that helped Moses fulfill God's will and Peter and Paul is the same providence, the same hope, the same trust that are helping men like Alan and the brethren in Vietnam. And it's the only way that we will accomplish God's will. When we learn not to trust and lean on our own understanding, but when we learn to trust in God in everything. I hope this has been encouraging to you.